Welcome to the Teens Talk podcast, created by the Student Virtual Board of Youth Celebrate Diversity. YCD supports students and teachers organizing locally, educating themselves and their peers, and taking action for inclusion and social justice. For more information, visit ycdiversity.org. In this episode, the conversation continues between board members Rediet and Etsu on the Black Lives Matter movement and how it affects teens today. I think like that this like leads in perfectly sorry like next section of white fragility and um the question being um have you ever had an experience where you were having a conversation with the white person and they got defensive or angry over something you said if so how did you respond to the situation when have I not <laughs> when have I, you yeah, know I was like I, which one <laughs> which you know I have you know and I've come in a, a, across a lot of like those like really well-meaning allies and like white people and it's just really funny um I pride myself and in it and I had to grow and learn to be this way I'm not here to make you comfortable that's the last thing I'm gonna do that's the last thing I'm ever gonna do um in the sense of um taking up space in in white spaces right and occupying those spaces I'm not I didn't come here to say you're doing a good job right and it's really funny um I taught for a very long time and I had this um, you know, this white woman, she, this correlation, it's really interesting to me because we see all these dynamics. Um, there was this correlation with, and she was a very, like I said, she was a very sweet lady. She had a really, uh, she had a good heart. She just uneducated in a lot of aspects of black issues and trauma and pain and history that, you know, pertains to, to our spaces. And it's so funny because she's, um, she's an older white woman, probably like in her sixties. Um, she's, she was she's a lesbian so she would constantly compare my experience to her experience right oh well I'm a I'm a white lesbian woman back when this was not acceptable and I'm just like you know I understand you have you had your own struggle it's not the same we can't compare those things I can sit and uh, empathize I can't say oh I know your experience because I don't right and it's really funny one day um we went to go, I think we were picking up some materials. We, at the school, we had a community garden, right? And she worked with the music and, which is funny to me now, of she was in charge of like the multiculturalism, which is, was very hilarious. Um, but we were having a conversation about um, adopting black children, right? Like white people adopting black children. And my stance on that is very clear. You should not be adopting black children if you're not willing to educate yourself on what their experiences at all costs, right? All your feelings, your family, you should not be adopting children who are not, who are um, non-white as a white person if you are not willing to protect them, right? And do better, educate yourself. And it's so funny because she started getting really defensive and she brought up this whole, um, well, you know, like nobody else will adopt them. So, and you know, that kind of just sent me into a like, I'm like, look, do you want countless, um, literal countless accounts I can pull up off the top of my head of white adoptee parents killing their children, you know, black children. And it's not a thing because obviously we've seen America has shown us that um, black children are not important. Um, they're disposable. America has shown us that. And I went into this just, okay, this is what happens. This is what happens. This is what happens. Do you understand how traumatic, I mean, we're put in, 
white spaces, right? We're, you know, institutions, but we can come home to our families, right? Can you imagine being in the white spaces, right? Not looking like any of your family, not going to schools that have um, programs that help you, you know, and, 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 and benefit you in the sense of your identity and who you are, right? And in that legacy that we have, you know, because slavery is not our legacy. We were, we've, we were, we were so much before that, during that, and after that. So just imagine not being able, what type of trauma and violence that has on, on the psyche and the brain and, and, and health, um, not being able to escape those spaces, right? And she, well, what I'm saying is that um, we're the ones who, the, it's the gay white couples who are adopting kids. And, you know, I just told her, you know, at the end of the day, my, my response to any of those situations is, I'm going to be real with you. And I'm going to tell you, you have some work to do. And I'm going to tell you, mm, you really need to be looking in the mirror. You know, I'm not going to coddle your feelings because I feel like that's why we're in the situation we're in. Right. And this is, I, I tell people all the time, um, anytime we have a march, you see something, you say something. White people feel emboldened to do these types of things because their own peers don't call them out. And it might not change their ideology, but it will get them, hey, maybe I shouldn't say the N-word in public next time because this person called me on it and something else might happen next time. So it's like, I tell people, you see something, you say something. If I'm in that space, no one else is in that space, but me and this woman, it is my job to tell her, look, you got it messed up. I don't, you hear, here. And in that case, she, you know, I was straightforward with her. I didn't cuddle with feelings, but I know that she, her, her, you know, she's willing to do better. Right. So it was one of those things I was perfectly comfortable with telling her, no, you need to do this. You need to read this. You need to look up this. You need to look up, you need to re do some research because whatever bubble you're in, this is not the bubble for those children who get adopted by white parents who are not interested in, um, I mean, they're more so interested in, in having this complex than actually um, benefiting these children, right? But any other person, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I I'll, I just pop off. I just get crazy. I'm like, look, what you're not going to do is this. But when it's people that I feel like really want to learn and grow, I'll, I'll call it out. I'll call them out on it and and offer up some resources. But that's not the case all the time. Sometimes I'm I'm like, okay. So you're in for a good dragging. Yeah, I think for me, it's a lot of what we kind of talked about before. Uh, we're seeing more and more in different systems that white women are being placed in these positions of power. And then they often come to us as black women for advice, uh, but never take it. And that's part of the fragility. Oh, what can I do? How can I be better? And you tell them and they're like, oh, okay. Or they have the excuse of, that's too hard, or I can't do this. And, um, you know, that's part of the fragility of, are you actually invested in transforming uh, the environment for marginalized groups, or are you abiding by the status quo? Because if you're abiding by the status quo, then that's just what you're doing. You're contributing to the patriarchy, even though you're this woman in power. Um, so I think there's just constant kind of examples of that, of being dismissed being unheard, and then that's usually followed by the gaslighting uh, to make it seem like uh, everything that you're experiencing is not true, or, oh, things are better, or, well, look, you just did this, um, so shouldn't you be grateful kind of response um, that is just dismissive and toxic and harmful. Um, so I, I think 
again, people got the surface level of white fragility from the books and from the discussions and book clubs and all of this, but they don't know how um, immersed it is in their day-to-day living because they're not challenging themselves to do that. Uh, So if you're going to ask me for input or advice, are you actually going to take it? Um, And I think that's one of the steps that we're kind of missing in this movement for allies is um, they're listening, but that then that needs to be transformed into action. What are you actually doing? You're not actually doing the ally work. I often tell in trainings, don't call yourself an ally. Let the community call you an ally once you've earned it. Um, because uh, it, it is also surface until you're actually doing actions to benefit that community. And then they see it and then they can call you that ally. I don't go into spaces of other groups and call myself, oh, I'm this ally. Um, no, I need to show up. I need to listen. I need to learn. And then I need to act upon uh, whatever it is I say I'm going to do. And so that fragility just hinders them from making that step. Um, I think constantly for us, especially as Black women, we, we risk a lot on a regular basis. Uh, we're not afraid to lose relationships because we've been doing that since we were in elementary school. Uh, okay, this kid said that to me, this offensive thing, the slur, the N-word, whatever. Okay, you're gone. Bye. Um, but I think for allies and white women, especially when we're talking about this white fragility, uh, no, I, I, I can't say that to my best friend or in, uh, that's just the way they are. They're not willing to take that risk and lose like we are. Uh, and so that's that step of moving from that white fragility to, again, action, uh, to be anti-racist, to be decolonizing, that um, is just such a struggle. Yeah, I was just going to um, talk about how, like, yeah, I think it's, um, I feel like for me, like, um, like educating myself on white fragility and my response to it I've learned for most of it it's been very like passive and like I've just allowed them to like you know go ahead be angry and like let them say whatever because usually they've been in a position of power and I couldn't um standing up for myself would be like putting myself in danger I remember like I had this conversation with my counselor like a couple months ago where we were talking about like um racial injustice and my passion for it um for bringing in social justice and she was just like you know like actually I talked to my grandpa and he said that it's not really about your race you know even back then in like the south it wasn't really about your race it was about how poor you are so you know like how big is racism and like she was really minimizing like what I was trying to talk to her about and you know like no matter like how much I knew that was wrong and I should have like push her back I was just scared because I knew like you know in a year I needed her to do like my college application and stuff so I needed to be quiet and kind of like you know allow her to take the like um uh sorry yeah the allow her to take the position that is harmful yeah (laughs) like you know that reminds me of uh Black History Month during freshman year where we were reading To Kill a Mockingbird and, um, you know, we just started talking about like racism and, you know, segregation and all of that. And every time, I think there were like maybe five black kids in my English class that year. And every time we would speak up and we would talk about our trauma or something that we experienced regarding, you know, racism, our teacher um, would come in and he'd be like, yeah, I can totally relate to that. This, 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 this. And it was just kind of like, what are you doing? Because 
at least like be willing to listen and you know be like okay and then what did you learn from that etc etc but for me what I've noticed is that some white people will tend to think that they can also share the same struggles as you you know where it's like oh yeah um I was racially profiled at Barnes and Noble oh yeah oh my god me too I was racially profiled for being a white man (laughs) those are two completely different things you know and it's like the constant need for them to feel like they also have to feel our struggle but the way they do it is just so wrong you know and it's like to them they're an ally but in my eyes it's like you are again showing me that my story doesn't matter that my life doesn't matter that what I'm telling you doesn't matter to you because then you're taking my trauma and then you're like, oh yeah, I also have the same trauma when you really don't, you know? You know, what's interesting is uh, when I think about white fragility, um, white people and and um, I actually, specifically white women have this way um, it, within white fragility of centering themselves. So white people always want, and and when you look at, like, we talked about the historical context, that's all they know. They know me, 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 me. And if it's not me, it's my other white friend. Or if it's not that white friend, it's that, it's, it's my mom, it's my brother. So, and I think that it's incredibly important and crucial, especially in the space and the platform that I'm in, is to call that out, right? Um, We recently made a post about um, how white women, when they're uncomfortable or they're called out or um, someone's speaking about trauma, they cry, right? They cry. And what, what does that do? It shifts the attention right over to them, right? And next thing you know, you're talking about, you go from talking about your experience as a black woman, and then now everyone's around this white woman and like, oh my God, are you okay? Like, oh my gosh, yeah, I have the same, I've experienced the same thing. And I think that that is a huge problem within our society in education systems and how people talk about race and how people talk about um, experiences of marginalized groups of people. It is okay, you know, when, when, we, when I did, a, when I did the, our, white, our privilege, our white privilege um, workshop at the YCD conference, um, I had to tell people like, Everybody in some sort of way has privilege in some sort of way. The platform that I can operate, I have privilege on that. The way I navigate through the world due to my complexion, I have privilege, right? The fact that I was able to go to school, even though though we know the education was trash, right? And it wasn't what it was supposed to be. People, there are people and individuals who will never be able to step into that space, right? So I have privilege in those aspects. What people don't understand about privilege and white fragility and centering themselves is you do have a struggle. No one's trying to take that from you. And I think a lot of allies, they get in a space when you're saying, oh, this is my experience. Well, I have this experience too. So what makes you better than me or worse off than me? And what people don't really understand is that when you, um, when you are, a, for example, when you are a black woman living in this country, right? And, and it, if you want to add a little more intersectionality into that, when you are a black queer woman, right? When you are a black queer woman who is darker complected, right? When you are a black queer woman who's darker complected, who doesn't fit what that would look like for the world, you're dealing with all of these layerings of trauma and violence that is literally telling you, you should not exist. You should not be here. You should not exist. You can't occupy space. You don't have a platform. You don't, 
have a platform to say this, this, and this, and this. And what I've seen happen so many times is white women, when you tell them, I mean, when you're talking about sexual assault, right? I've, ha- I've been in plenty of spaces where um, uh, black women are talking about the sexual assault that they've experienced and the, that type of sexual violence they've, they've experienced. And I mean, almost every time I hear a white woman like, well, you know, I, this happened to me and I, you know, I, it's this idea. It's like this comforting, like, it's like one of those things, like they're just so used to everything being centered around them. And when it's not centered around them, it's a personal attack. And that's the thing I've, I've, I've had these conversations where I'm explaining, look, just because I'm talking about this, it does not mean I'm discrediting you as a person, but you have to be willing to understand that because of your white People think it's a surface level thing, right? When, when you're talking about, oh, well, like stop centering yourself. I'm not centering myself. I've had these experiences. People don't understand that there's a long history and things present of white folks literally taking, taking space and, and uh, platforms away from people of color, mm-hmm. black folks. So when they say, well, that's not my thing, you know, when, when we, when we, you got to stop doing that in these spaces, right? All of these people took it all out of proportion, right? There was people saying, what are you saying? White women can't cry. What are you saying? They can't have emotions. No, you're missing the point. The point is, it is historically known that white women were seen as a, um, this shrine of pureness and, and fragility and, and, uh, uh, if anything happens to these white women, they should be believed at all costs. They would never lie. They would never do these things. When, I mean, we've seen time and time again, white women, and, and a lot of white women don't like to hear this, are the cause, right? Um, I, I think about these power structures, right? So if you're looking at a pyramid, you would see a cisgendered white male at the top, right? And what I see, and I see this happen a lot, is black men and white women fight over the same type of power structure that these white men have, right? Not realizing they're never going to obtain that power. They're not a cisgendered white man. That's the system is created to lift them up. And what I've noticed with white women, white women will chase that power, try to obtain that power by literally dragging their own people, right? So this idea that, oh, I'm a woman, you're a woman, we bond. No, because I've seen consistent examples where black women have had to pull us out of the situations that white women have put us in, right? So within the the conversation of white fragility is people, and I always tell people, you want the trauma, you want the violence, you want all of that, that bad, please take it. Please. I want to move through the world freely. I don't want to have to worry about going outside. I don't have to worry about my brothers driving around past seven o'clock. I don't want to have to worry about these things. You want it, you have it, but that's not the reality. So in the sense of white fragility, white folks really don't, they really don't, um, uh, especially white women, they really don't understand the type of violence that they're um, perpetuating, even if you're an ally or you're whatever, when you center yourself like that, when you take, we don't have, I mean, we live in, it's a lot better than it was, but we don't have platforms like that where it's just so easily accessible to us, right? And then you have all the things that play into that. So when someone snatches um, and centers that on themselves, 
you know, and then gets upset when you call them on it, they have a lot of work to do. And like April said, are you really interested in making a change? Because if this is the type of spaces, if, the, if this is the way as an ally, you want to move in these spaces, you are committing just as much harm as someone who, um, um, it's a system and it's a structure that works together. You're creating just as much harm as these policies put in place, right? There's no, you're, it's the same type of trauma and violence that we're experiencing. And they think it's like the lesser of the evils or it's not my fault or it's not that bad. So it's like allies, al- allies um, really, really need to look at that and, and, and think about how these microaggressions and, and doing these types of things and then being upset when you, hey, look, this is what you did. This is not appropriate. You need to work on this. Um, how, how much trauma and violence that really inflicts on us and how it puts people like you young ladies into a space where you might not want, be willing to share your experience ever again because you've had these type of interactions with people. Sorry, yeah. Um, you know, actually this reminded me of like a conversation I had with Itzu um, yesterday about um, how we were in um, a conversation with like a white ally and it was the conversation was centered around um, Black um, Lives Matter and this white woman, she took it as like an invitation for her to like apologize about her not being educated and like, you know, like center around her when like the conversation was supposed to be about Black Lives Mattering. And it was, and then like, it was like, there was a pause where we had to like, as Black women, we had to like comfort her and be like, it's okay. Like, it's okay that you're racist. And like, it's okay that like, you continue to perpetuate white supremacy. Like, and I remember like, like holding myself because like, you know, like there was multiple like black people in that space and they were like, we were going around in a circle, like, like, you know, comforting her. And I was like the last one. I remember like trying to like hold myself and saying, no, like you cannot like comfort her. You cannot let her like take, you know, this spotlight. But like, I just like, I, like I got uncomfortable and like, I was like, it's okay. You're like, you know, like everybody was right. You're fine. Like, you know, I had to like allow her to be centered and which like, you know, leads me to like my next question. Where do you feel the response of black and other people of color comforting white people when having these conversations come from? Are you ready, April? Are you just, <laughs> you know, um, this is, uh, apparently this is my um I deal with this on a daily basis I think that that is a lot of wanting to belong right you know I talked about this power structure of whiteness right this white male power and um I've consistently been in spaces where people are telling me you're being mean you're give them a chance at least they showed up they did this and in my in, in, in my experience and in, in my space, that's the bare minimum. That's not even, that is not even on it. That's probably less than the bare minimum to me. So I think a lot of people of color and of, of black folks, and this has been experience, my experience more specifically with black men is that I'm this hyper aggressive, mean, angry, violent, rude, disrespectful, uneducated woman, right? Black woman who's just, I'm just so angry and I'm so enraged, right? Well, one, 
absolutely I'm angry. I, I, I'm 100% angry. I have every right to be angry um, at the state of the world and at the state of the existence of Blackness in, in uh, across, right, all over the world, because Blackness is not accepted in any space, right? Um, um, and that is just, I mean, you can, you can go back and look onto that through, through, um, history. Um, but I think that it is a lot and, and, and it's taking me a lot of time to realize this. It's a lot of self-hate. Um, it's a lot of wanting to be accepted, right? It's a, it's a lot of wanting. I think it's also a lot of, um, having relationships with people who, um, one-sidedly we care about, but they don't care about us. Right. Because, and I tell people that, um, as a friend, I, I, I did an arts collective and we had some kids, um, performing, right. These were kids who were like 16, 17, 18 years old, and they had a group and two of them, one of them was half black, half Mexican. The other boy was black. And then they had another group member who was white. Right. And I'll tell you right now, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your friends told you in my space you will not use the N-word. I don't care. I, you know, that's just something I'm not, I'm, I don't tolerate. I've been in plenty of spaces where I've had to tell people who I thought were my friends. You know me, you know me as a person and you know I don't get down like that. So I, we're not friends. You can't respect me enough to not do these small things. Then we don't need to be, we don't need to have any type of relationship. And I just, there's a point in everyone's life where we start, to, It's it's kind of like this awakening, right? Um, and especially people who are involved in activism and organizing, there's always these spaces, this, this time period where you start seeing things, you see microaggressions, macroaggressions, but you see them from people you really love and you care about, right? And that's where these young boys were, right? They were performing at this arts collective that I was putting on. They've known this kid since elementary school, but he had, and he, he didn't really quite understand um, his Black friends' identities, right? And, and the space we're in and how what how our existence is a threat to everything. You know, people are so terrified of blackness existing that we're being murdered on the street for no reason other than just existing, right? And um, I remember they were so angry. And I, I, cause I've had these, I've had these experiences. These boys were so angry because they loved their friend, right? They loved their friend, but also they didn't want to confront him. They didn't want to hurt him. They didn't think he would understand, right? And I told them, I said, you know, I can't force you to do anything. Um, but at the end of the day, either you're going to put up with this behavior or you're not. You know, you're going to, you're, I can't force you to tell him, you know, all I can do is in my spaces, tell him the guidelines and the standard. And, you know, I even told him, when he got there, if I hear it one time in your music, because he just would throw it around. I, apparently when they were, you know, um, pra, uh, their band was practicing. And I told him, look, if I hear it one, if I hear even anything, the slightest bit with the N, N, anything, mm, anything, I told him, I will snatch you off that stage and I will put you out. We will not tolerate it. And they got to a point where um, I told him, you know, this is much uh, uh, dealing with these types of spaces and, and individuals in these spaces is more, um, what's the word? It's more work than you, than, than cutting them off. Right. And, you know, they basically got into a space where they said they couldn't do it anymore. They're no longer friends. He just wasn't willing to understand or listen or anything like that. But I think that 
it's a lot of, like I said, I think this is, a, we're, we're taught um, to be in spaces and, and, and say, well, you know, they're my friend or I'm going to look crazy if I say something or people are going to not want to work with me. And, and to that, I honestly just say like, I cannot be in those spaces. I cannot operate in spaces where people are, are going to allow their friends, their family members, you know, disrespect me. I told friends that you invite me over to, for, for a Thanksgiving dinner, your grandma says something racist. I'm going to call her out. It is what it is. You either support me in my humanity and, and, and me as a person. Cause I think a lot of times people, uh, connect this, like, like calling out or calling in whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, idea of like calling family members out or friends out with like, what's the word? Um, they like, there's like this, uh, connotation of like, if I call that person out, um, they're not going to love me anymore. Right. And I think, I think that it's the exact opposite. If they love you, they will listen to you. They will respect you. And, and, and I've had a lot of situations where I've said, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. And if this is what you think and how you think and how you want to operate, I can't have a relationship with you. And I would, you would be surprised how many people are respectful in that space. Right. But I think, like I said, I think it has to do with just the structure, right. It's a, it's a deeper issue of, of self-hate and, and wanting to belong and wanting to be accepted and wanting to be in those spaces, right. And be an unproblematic person. Um, especially in today's time, right. We have all these, um, movements going on and especially for younger folks, um, you are all in the middle, right these are discussions you're having, um, with family and friends and things like that. And it, it, and I, my favorite thing, I think you all, I think youth are, are doing a lot better than I did when I was younger, but, um, I love this, this, these viral sensations of kids calling out their parents. Like that is just amazing to me. I would have never, I mean, I, I would experience trauma from kids, the kids justifying their parents' behavior. Right. And it's like, we're in a space where youth are saying, yeah, um, there was this whole video that came out where they were at a, a school, a parent school meeting or a PTA. And this um, man who's an immigrant from Mexico, right, was explaining, talking about the trauma his kids experience at this predominantly white institution, right? And one of the dads in the back, this white guy's like, well, go back to Mexico then. And like, obviously everyone was enraged. You know, this is something that happens all the time, unfortunately, which is disgusting. Um, but the son, and I love this, the son, like the dad refused to comment on it and things like that. It, it was, it spread like wildfire, but the son, he went on the internet and was like, these are not my beliefs. My dad's racist. Like, don't associate me with my dad. Like, and I just think it takes so much courage and bravery to do that because um, I know adults who are still in spaces who are still afraid. Um, and I understand the being afraid behind the, the reasoning behind that, but there's still in spaces to tell their girlfriend, like, Hey, saying you want to have mixed children. Mm, there's some problematic. There's you know, it's problematic to say things like that. And, and it's, you know, we're, we're looking at fetishization and things like that. So it's like, it does give me a little bit of hope to be in a space where these kids, you all are just like, Nope. Okay, we have social media. We're about to virtually drag you. 
And then they, they go to dinner, like nothing happened. They're like, hey, mom, hey, dad, like sit at the table. And I love that. I love that so much. But yeah, I think it's a deeper issue. And I think that there's a lot of uh, um, history in that. And, and I think um, we got to do a lot of healing um, uh, um, amongst ourselves um, to ensure that like, Oh, it's just like the topic is just so much to talk about and, and how that it's not a like quick fix. Right. You know, um, I, I, I'll have talks and conversations with people who, who do do those things. And, and if I can, um, get somewhere in those conversations, great. But I've had definitely times where, you know, I have people they're defending, individuals uh white white allies or white white friends who are just really problematic and discouraging and the things they say are incredibly violent because words have meaning in marginalized communities they result and end it in violence for us so to see people not correct those things and not willing to correct those things or call them out um sometimes you just can't associate with those people you just have to remove yourself from the situation because no matter how much you talk to them or no matter how much you tell them, Hey, I love you. And I care about you, but you can't allow people to treat your community, your people like this. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it don't, doesn't, but I just have told myself, I'm not going to allow those things to happen. And if that's what they're going to do, that's their prerogative. They move differently than me. And that's not something that I can accept. You know, you talked about like, well, I don't remember, you know, word for word, but you brought up, you know, like black men and how we kind of like crave acceptance from white people. And I feel like that's so true, especially in like high school, middle school, especially in like a predominantly white um, space where I, I don't know, it just reminds me of this one experience I had like a couple of weeks before school closed where uh, one of my friends came crying to me and she was telling me how um, this one white boy would keep saying the N word, like hard R in class. And no matter like how many times people told him to stop, he just would not stop. And most of his friends were black boys. And it's like no matter how hard she would go up to them and be like guys like you need to tell him like this is not okay because if he doesn't learn that this isn't okay from a young age like he's only going to get worse as he gets older right and she would tell me like no matter what she would do they would they just wouldn't do anything about it and they would laugh at her and they would make her feel like the bad guy and you know it got to the point where security was involved he got suspended and all that but it's like I feel like black boys specifically constantly won't speak up because they crave that validation and they crave that acceptance from their white peers. And so it's like, when are you gonna stop craving this sort of validation that you might never get? And even if you do get it, you might not fully be happy and um, feel like, you know, oh, I've achieved like what I want to. And finally like stand up to, for black women. You know, it's like that energy is never reciprocated where black men, women will do anything to stand up for black men and be there for them. But where is that energy the, when it's the other way around? And, you know, we saw this with like Breonna Taylor, where everybody was speaking about George Floyd, but Breonna Taylor's story wasn't even heard as much, you know. And so I can totally understand what you were saying when you were talking about 
some people will just crave that acceptance from white people and it's just to feel like they belong or to feel like they're not problematic but it's just like you're being more problematic when you don't speak up about it yeah we get all these messages surrounding code switching and respectability politics if you behave in this certain way then they'll bring you into the community and you'll have all of this that they have. And none of that's true. None of that's true. Uh, You could do all the right things and you're still going to be this black woman at the end of the day, and they're going to treat you as such. Um, And and I think that's like the key message of, you know, we, uh, many of us, not all, uh, were trained at an early age to engage in that code switching and, and sometimes our caregivers did that to keep us safe. Um, I want you to return home at night. So please do these things uh, so I can ensure that you return home at night. Uh, and, you know, going back to the uh, original question, that's why uh, sometimes it's instinct for people to go and coddle the person who's crying. Uh, because again, we, we want to make sure they're validated and safe and protected because we have to see them again. And so I, I think in some ways we have to break out of that code switching and respectability politics, no matter if we did all the right things, uh, again, that are all coded in uh, misogyny and racism and all this, uh, we're still mistreated. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, why not be authentic and be yourself and still feel good when you go to bed at night? Yeah, for sure. Um, for me, so like um, I, I'm originally from Ethiopia and when I moved to America, I was, I believe like I moved, like I went right into second grade and I remember like this constant struggle between my teachers, my parents and me between like me, like standing up for myself, me speaking out, me asking questions and my teachers not wanting to deal with that. And I remember like eighth grade was like when I was like very like I was standing up like I was going to the dean when my like white um, English teacher was being racist to me when she was refusing to help me out I was like very like persistent and I saw how like at the end I just ended up getting suspended because like she had taken my phone like without telling me she you know stole it and then I found out and I got angry at her and I was the one that was suspended for getting angry because she took it without telling me. So like going into ninth grade year and like, you know, that like whole like um, back and forth with her, like it like hurt my grade a lot. And I was always like a perfectionist when it came to school. Like I could not even handle a B and it like would break my heart when I would work so hard for that straight A. And because like I would have like, sorry, my dog is like chewing his ball like really loud, but (laughs) like because like you know this teacher hated me she would um I remember, like especially my eighth grade English teacher like she would actually like went and talked to my math and social science uh, teachers and told them like you know like to like you know like was talking bad about me and they started treating me bad and I saw like me standing up for myself like did not end up well so going into like freshman year I decided to like cut that and you know like I was gonna be the quiet like you know I was gonna code switch into like being the little like shy quiet black girl and I saw at the end that didn't work for me either like like you know no matter how hard I tried and like at the end like I even confronted the teacher and like told her how like look like I had all these like A's like why didn't my grade end up being lower than what I deserved and her like response was like well like you know something that like was out of my control she used it against me um, and I think like, you know, finally, like, after all these years, like I've, <laughs> I've realized that no matter like how much, okay, yeah, I, I'll kick him out after this, but no matter like how hard I 
try to assimilate into like black white spaces like it's never gonna work and I finally need to find my voice stand strong in it and be firm and you know when you, I think about that too is like doesn't that put you in more spaces for violence right like when you're put in a space where you have to deal with these things and I think that that's another thing what right like having people and this is a whole system that works together having people that look like you right and relate to you in those spaces to say, oh, I know you didn't just do, like, you know what I mean? Like, and in that sense, like adults, right? Um, uh, I had this conversation and um, I mean, we've talked about it quite a bit. It's not your job to do the, to, to it, you should not be having to fight those fights, right? You're a kid, you're, a, you're, you're young, you're, your main concern should be school and friends and, and um, things like that, right? Those should be your main concerns. And it's what I think about is like, you get put, you like, like you were saying, you get put into these spaces where you're like a problem child, right? Cause that was me. I remember when I was a kid, my mom strained my hair, which was rare. She never did it. She strained it and you know, the rundown, if you get it wet, it gets messed up. And if I got it messed up, I was gonna get in trouble. This white boy, this little white boy threw water in my hair and I was freaking out because I'm like, my mom specifically told me not to get water, get it wet, right? And um, he was throwing water on me. He's just like, you know, antagonizing me, antagonizing me. So then I finally reacted. Um, and it wasn't anything crazy. Like, I think I just like shoved him. And like, you know, I was, I was just one of those kids. Like, if it got to a point where I had to like punch you in the eye one time, like, then that's what we would do. Because my parents were very, you know, they never put me in a space. Um, thankfully, I was never in a space where it was, you know, it, my parents always told me if they come at you on, on any aspect of racism or touching you without your consent, anything like that, you have like full permission to like just beat the crap out of them, right? And crazy enough, I got in trouble, right? But they didn't tell my parents I got in trouble. They put me in anger management without my parents knowing, which is a whole violation, right? The school could have been sued. All of these things happen, you know? So it's like those types of things. But like you said, even if you don't, you're still experiencing violence no matter which way you go, right? So like April was saying, and that's what I've learned. That's that's the, the biggest takeaway for me is like, because I used to be very like, okay, let me explain to you. Let me tell you, let me guide you through why things are the way they are. But people were, are not interested in that. They don't care about those, those conversations. So like April said, I learned to just authentically be myself because at the end of the day, um, if, if these people have no intention of seeing you, protecting you, hearing you, they're just, they're, they're not going to do it. There's no, you know, side note or way out of that, which sucks. And it's not your responsibility to be in those spaces standing up for you, but that's why representation is important, right? Um, I want to be for um, young black girls what I did not have in spaces, what I didn't, what I was afraid to say, or what I, you know, had to experience because nobody who could, who looked like me or could relate to me or understood my experience, even the slightest was in, in those spaces, right? And you are all um, still dealing with that. And that has to change because you shouldn't, the time where you're having, the, the time of your life where you should be carefree and having a good time and learning and growing and just blossoming, you shouldn't have to worry about, oh my God, how am I going to deal with this racist teacher? Or if I bring it up, like, are they going to believe me? That should not be a worry. And that's why it's important for me to be in spaces where when it's pre 
it's predominantly, you know, predominantly white spaces, but also like being unapologetically myself and letting, you know, youth know that that's okay. You don't have to code switch. You don't have to be in these spaces where this is appropriate. This is an appropriate way to be and act and, and, and how people will see you, but to be in spaces where you can say, Hey, look, you know, you're acting crazy, but I'm going to go talk to my teacher who I know is going to get this handled. And I think that you all need more support like that in spaces where you don't have that or in spaces where ageism um, is also piled on top of racism, ableism, all this uh, misogyny, white supremacy. You also need to be in spaces where adults are willing, because there are adults who are literally afraid to do what you are doing, is putting yourself in those spaces and saying, no, this is unacceptable. And adults need to work on that because you all deserve better. I love that. And, you know, I think for me, it's just like, I've come to tell myself, I'd rather be known as that one girl that's problematic and um, ratchet and angry rather than the girl that's known as the silent black girl that lets everybody walk over her. And it's just, you know, like, it's just like, I'd rather be, the one standing up rather than just sitting down and letting all of that ha stuff happen to me and my peers and not doing anything about it. And so I really love what you said, um, Nikki. So, yeah. And I love the, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I love the, um, I love the, oh, when Nikki's around, we're just going to shut up because we don't want to hear her. I love that. That's my favorite. You don't want to hear my mouth, then be quiet. Like, I love walking into a room and people knowing I'm not going to tolerate that. So they're just like, okay, we're just going to shut up. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, the next thing we wanted to talk to you guys about was the history of like the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, for those who don't know, the movement began back in 2013, and it was a response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murder, uh, George Zimmerman. So when did you two personally hear about the movement and what prompted you to be a part of it? I heard about it right away because um, I went to grad school in Florida. Um, and so a very uh, near and dear uh, of being in the Orlando kind of metro region. Um, and again, just a tragedy of thinking about young people who can't even walk home safely. And that highlighting that, you know, the simple things that we try to engage in walking home is seen as a threat uh, to white people in this country. Uh, so I, I think that was my first time where I really knew about the movement, uh, where I supported the movement from the beginning, uh, that this all came from, again, continued historical racial trauma that uh, Black Americans have been experiencing since uh, the enslavement of Black Americans. Uh, I, I think then a few years later, the Sandra Bland case, again, hit home for me. This was another person who was just trying to drive home, who was standing up for themselves and protecting their rights uh, when uh, she was speaking to that police officer and didn't make it back home. Uh, and, and so we had these continued cases that were highlighting, and I think the movement came about of how do we collectively deal with this racial trauma that's happening uh, by police? Um, and, and I think that's where I was on board for it. Like this has to end that people's rights are just simply being violated um, uh, for living and being themselves. Um, 
then again, I think I got into the movement just based off of the multitude of cases that were happening over the years um, and thinking about what can I do to aid and help? And obviously the movement has transformed from there. There's still people who think Black Lives Matter is all about policing. No, we talked about this historical and structural racism that's happening and why Black Lives Need to Matter across systems and across the world uh, in terms of the anti-Black racism that's happening. Uh, so I think that's, I heard about it from its inception. Uh, the movement spoke to me because yeah, it's Black Lives Should Matter, quite simple. Uh, you know, you get the people who do the pushback and I was like, there's no only in that statement. It's Black Lives Simply Matter, that our humanity should matter. Our, uh, our There should be compassion for who we are and we should be able to just walk home, drive home without being killed. No, I agree with that. Um, as simple as a, a phrase it is, people tend to come up with these crazy notions, right? That, and narratives. Um, my experience was a little bit different. Um, uh, I was in college at the time and um, seeing as New Mexico, you know, our, our the black demographic here is really small, but it does not mean that we were not experiencing the same type of emotions and feelings. Um, but um, being a young person and having social media, it was more so through social media, right? And aside from social media, um, I did have, thankfully, when you get to college, you get to choose your, your you know, what you want to learn about. And I had a, a Thankfully, I have um, just so many brilliant Black professors, right? And these were the conversations we were having. Um, but when I really, really, really started to, you know, be in a space where I said, oh, this, I cannot allow this to just, this, this space to just be occupied is when I started seeing organizations here specifically um, kind of claiming that um, movement, right? Non-Black people claiming that movement and, and exploiting that. And I just felt very uncomfortable in the space that um, all of these organizations were like, Black Lives Matter, we're going to collect money in these spaces, we're going to hold forums, but there was no Black people in those spaces. That was when, for me, I said, you know, if, if this is going to happen here, and it was kind of a slow process. It was, it went from like, you know, obviously there was no branch here, but it went from like, no, it, it went from like, and this sounds so crazy. It went from like me being the one person who is directly correlated with anything that ha ha had to do with Black Lives Mattering, right? And at that time, I was probably like 19, 20, 21, maybe. Um, and so, yeah, I went through this space where it was like a lot of pressure and a lot of stress on me. And um, uh, I, I think when you are in those types of spaces where, where, there's no, there's no one you can turn to or relate to. Um, you crave, right? You crave community, you crave um, um, people that can relate and, and wanna help and support. So I heard about it, like I said, I heard about it fairly early on um, when it was just a hashtag and when people were talking about it. Um, and unfortunately it took such a long time to get um, any movement behind it here, because like I said, people believe that New Mexico is a very progressive and accepting state, but also on top of that, uh, they believe that literally five Black people live in the state of New Mexico, which is absolutely not true. Um, we account for 3% of the demographic, but we are a huge population. Um, we've seen that at Juneteenth celebrations. It's just this idea of discrediting and erasure, right, that we experience 
But yeah, it was definitely something that um, right away, I, I mean, being in spaces with Black folks, and that's something I never really seen throughout any of my education. I never seen Black folks in spaces and, and, and in spaces of academia, right? Where they're in these, there you sit in those spaces and 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 they'll they tell what's really actually happening in our historical context, and they don't shy away from what's happening, right? They're not like, oh, you know, it's just police, it's not police brutality, you know. They're I, I'm in a class with predominantly non-black folks, and to hear. Um, professors come in and say, you know what, we're not talking about this today. This is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about um, uh, the value um, of Black folks in this country and how, you know, we should put more effort. And I love that. And I'm so thankful I had that experience. And that's what inspired me to say, hey, you know, um, I can't let people get away with exploiting our pain and trauma, but not helping us in any way, right? Like, so that was mainly, that's, that's how I came about it, which is really interesting. I wish I had more of a community during that time, but I've learned and grown. And um, so I have such a huge community now. So at least we got there. Especially within this past year after George Floyd's um, murder, there's been a lot of policies or a lot of talk within Congress trying to um, just bring more policies out that benefit Black people or people of color as a whole. And so what do you guys personally believe um, are the policies that not only allies, but Black sh people should be supporting? And what uh, politicians do you think are the best ones to contact when it comes to policies revolving around um, criminal justice and anything to help benefit the lives of Black people? Yeah, obviously I'm not gonna be able to cover everything because there's so much that needs to be changed across systems. Um, but you know, just low-hanging fruit from last year, just thinking about ending qualified immunity. Uh, here in Colorado, we did pass Senate Bill 217 last year, which was the Police Integrity and Accountability Act, which ended qualified immunity, collecting more data on uh, police stops um, and arrest of individuals uh, because we know individuals with mental illness are more likely to die by police. We know veterans are more likely to die by police. And again, if we're looking at intersectionality, uh, likely people of color in those bubbles as well. Uh, rights of protesters being protected in uh, some of that legislation because of all the horrific things we saw last year. I think at least eight people in the Denver metro area lost eyes um, due to the uh, less lethal uh, munitions that were used on protesters last year. Um, so again, I think there's so much in terms of policing and thinking about accountability that needs to be passed and they're looking at the federal level of ending qualified immunity. Um, but again, just thinking across system, uh, systems as we talked about systemic racism, another thing that's before Congress is the Momnibus Act. Um, uh, so thinking about the black maternal mortality crisis, that uh, black women are more uh, four times more likely to die uh, due to uh, prenatal and postnatal kind of effects and racism uh, compared to white women. Uh, so there's a bunch of legislation there before Congress that I've been talking to our representatives about in order to get that passed. Um, We've been talking about school to prison pipeline issues. Uh, so how do we kind of stop that pipeline from happening? Hiring more black teachers, uh, uh, increasing race and ethnic studies in schools, um, abolishing a lot of these unfair disciplinary practices. 
there's so much out there that we can be targeting now that I'm glad that it's all coming to the forefront at this moment. Um, but it's slow. Uh, we're seeing um, we're, we're seeing some of the filibusters happening right now when we're talking about the George Floyd Policing Act, when we're talking about the anti-lynching act that's been denied year after year after year. Um, so we need to get that people power in there. Uh, for myself, I wish I was taught more about state level politics because that's things that are happening in your own community. There are laws happening right now at that state capitol that you don't know about because you're not there. And sometimes to no fault of our own. I can't, uh, I can, I have some flexibility at work, but the average person can't take off of work to go testify at the state capitol. Uh, so they don't know what's going on in their community. So I've been talking to a lot of people, um, young people, my graduate students about showing up for state level politics. Are you going to city council meetings because they're making decisions about um, you? A uh, reporter just contacted me this week and he said, uh, did you know that they're about to sign a $9 million contract with Aramark uh, to have their food in prisons? And I'm like, Aramark, you know, the people who had uh, found to be had maggots in their food a few years ago, Aramark, the, when I worked in juvenile detention, our kids wouldn't eat that food and we know the importance of food security for kids and their brains. No, we can't have that here. And so let's have those conversations. Let's find out what's going on in our local government. Because, yeah, we have some influence on uh, federal politics and federal government. But what's going on in our own community for change? We just passed a, a bill on Friday. It signed into law on Friday to protect the rights of uh, BIPOC farmers. Uh, you know, there's so much that's going on in this moment that we need to get well-versed in. And that, that goes for me too. I had to start learning. Uh, I, I didn't know I could just walk into the Capitol and testify on a bill uh, because I didn't have that civics education. And I think that's purposeful uh, that they deliberately don't want us to know how uh, local and state politics works so we won't be empowered to show up. Um, but last year we did. We had people showing up to city council meetings in mass for the very first time here in Denver. We had people going to the Capitol to talk about these different pieces of legislation. Um, so think about the systems that you want improved and how do we get laws passed to actually change that? And how do we start electing, as we saw, more black women into office, more people of color into office who will actually stand up for us and create that change? Where I live is just, I mean, out of control, violent, crazy. And our mayor who attends Juneteenth, who's always, you know, ready for a photo op with black folks is literally just uh, gave a APD and APD is considered one of um, the nation's um, most violent police departments. Uh, I mean, they spent billions in dollars in settlements um, from the abuse and, and, and murder and violence that they've inflicted on um, marginalized communities here. And they just received 220, 224.3 million dollars, right? And but they gave things like um, education, one million, and they gave you know. So um, I think that, and you know, a lot of people are unaware of these things. So I, I think that it's very important um, to look at what local organizations and what individuals you know who are involved are working on and what they're because a lot of those a lot of the work behind that starts from grassroots and in the community so it's people doing normal everyday people who ha who have had these experiences doing the work to get these things passed just like you were talking about the crown act right we had a whole thing here too where and it was literally black women working so hard which is so sad that in 2021 this is what we're 
this is what we have to do, right? <laughs> like, you know, so uh, I, yeah, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, and obviously like everything April said is it's really important. There's so, um, just try not to get overwhelmed because there's so many things. I think um, maybe picking one thing at a time and focusing and seeing it through um, is a really big thing. Cause I know we get tired and we, we get exhausted and we don't want to do these. I have times I, I schedule stuff and then I'm just like, you know, I'm not feeling it anymore. So I think, and, and being around people who care not only about getting these things passed and, and, and um, bettering your, your local community, but also on a national level, but also like really, they really, really prioritize, prioritize your mental health. You know, I've had people make me feel guilty because like uh, April saying, I work, I can't just leave my job to go, um, sit in on these things. It's at three o'clock, right? Most people are at work or it's two o'clock, 2 PM. I can't just leave my job whenever I want. So, um, I think being around people who understand that and know that you're doing the best that you can. And, um, like April said, it's very slow, but honestly, I think, uh, we're in a space where, um, they're afraid. They're afraid of the reckoning that is coming and, and, and we're going to continuously fighting for that. And, uh, I think it definitely scares them that they're kind of losing this control that they've had for so long and it's just slipping out of their hands and, you know, we're grasping and we're pulling. So I think that, um, even though it's slow, uh, I do have so much hope and I'm so thankful that, um, I get to see young people like yourselves blossom and, and, um, cause I was, um, I can tell you right now at your age, I was not having these conversations, right. I was not, people didn't care to have these conversations, you know, so I'm incredibly thankful and you all have voices and you inspire and in being involved when people see you involved in on the local level, um, more youth want to get involved, you know? So yeah, I just second everything April said. Yeah. Um, Wow, thank you so much, guys. Um, I know like we've reached our time limit. Honestly, like we can go on for days and it still be like such a fruitful conversation that, you know, we can't have uh, other than like in our spaces of Black women. Um, honestly, thank you, know, say thank you all for having us here and having this dialogue. Uh, again, you are the ones to make this happen. Uh, there will be some changes in my lifetime, uh, but you all are going to make the changes that I want to see in the generations way after my time. Yeah, and um, I just want to second everything you already said. Um, we really appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy, busy schedules um, to have this conversation. And I know it's going to impact a lot of people. So thank you guys again. And thank you to YCD for letting us um, film this and giving us the platform to educate not ourselves, but our community as well. And us, I'm telling you, I don't know at all. I'm, I'm in constant amazement anytime I'm in, in, in spaces with young people. I'm so amazed and I, I get sad. I'm like, oh, I, I just wish I was like your age now though. Like not when I was my age, you know, because you are all doing so much. And um, like April said, you know, it's just, it's you are creating the changes that that we want to see. We're doing our best to get it ready for you, but we're not going to be able to. And with that being said, I have so much faith and and hope. And I'm, you know, anytime I talk to uh, young folks, I'm revitalized and I feel ready to go. And I feel like going out there and acting crazy because 
you you did you all just give me that energy so thank you thank you for allowing us uh to hold some space with you yeah thank you so much if you enjoyed this podcast please consider donating to support this work by youth activists across the country visit ycdiversity.org to make a donation or to get involved